I'm recording this the morning after the New Hampshire primary, and while the presidential picture remains muddled, there is at least one stunning upset. The polls leading up to New Hampshire were pretty much accurate. On today's episode, Popular Mechanics political correspondent Mark Warren sits down with pollster Nick Gorovich of Global Strategy Group to learn more about how polling works, how it's changed over time, and what it's going to take to do it right in a riotous year for politics. After that, we're going to switch gears from public policy to public health and talk to medical epidemiologist Dr. Daniel Pastula about the Zika virus. He explains how it spreads and what we can expect from Zika here in the United States. Then to cheer things up a bit, we're going to talk about Deadpool. No, I'm serious. Despite the dour title, the superhero movie is actually wickedly funny, and it's also a showcase of technical wizardry. So in honor of this weekend's science and technical Oscars, editor Peter Martin talks to the film's visual effects supervisor, Jonathan Rothbart, about what it takes to make convincing special effects, as well as his favorite special effect of the year. Finally, Brian Kelly of ThePointsGuy.com, he is the points guy, joins us in determining if a new subscription-based flying app is stupid or amazing. I'm Kevin Dupsick, and this is How Your World Works. We're still 10 months away from the presidential election, and it's already true that every time you read the paper or load a page online, you see another political poll with different numbers than the last one you read. Popular Mechanics resident political junkie Mark Warren sat down with a pollster to find out what the story is. I'm here this morning with Nick Gorovich, the Democratic pollster with the Global Strategy Group. Nick, thanks for joining me. Well, thanks for having me, Mark. In a campaign like no other in which one candidate has focused so extensively on polls, almost to the exclusion of issues, or should I say polling itself has become an issue. Uh, in terms of what was predicted and what actually happened, what surprised you about Iowa and New Hampshire? Well, first of all, Mark, I want to thank you for having me on uh, the morning after the polls were right in New Hampshire. You know, there's been a lot of instances over the last few years where uh, the polls have been wrong in certain places, so that would have been a more uncomfortable uh, discussion. I want to hold you accountable for that later. <laughs> well, we'll, well, I'm sure we'll talk about it. Um, you know, in terms, of the, in terms of your question, from a polling perspective, generally speaking, the polls have been right, except for maybe in, uh, in the Republican side in, in Iowa. Um, so one of the surprising things may be that there hasn't been as much change from, mm, from the mm-hmm. poll to the final result. Uh, but, you know, I think uh, bigger picture, if you, if you take a step back, um, you know, certainly there's been a lot of surprises from who has is, who is won and, and, and political surprises. But from a polling perspective, I'm not sure um, there's been a ton of, ton of shocks thus far. It's only in the last generation that we've begun, I believe, commonly referring to scientific polling and that, that polling has become... Uh, extraordinarily sophisticated yep. with computer modeling, et cetera. How did, how did the, the early models for polling come together, and how are they different from what you do now? Sure. It's a great question. You know, I think that um, for, for the insiders, polling has always been rooted in science, but the science um, was much sort of simpler when it first started. It was basic sampling theory, you know, random sampling theory. I'm going to go out, I'm going to ask a random group of people a series of questions. And statistics tells us that, you know, the results we get back from that random sample will be, um, you know, representative of the population at large within a certain, you know, margin of error, sampling error, right? And so there was a very basic thing. You could, you could very easily take a random sample. People were willing to participate in your polls. Um, everybody had a landline telephone. You, mm. could, you could call up random digits, get answers, and sort of have this representative sample. I think what's really changed is, is the ability to get that random sample. Um, it, it is one major change, and so with the introduction of 
of cell phones and the internet uh, has changed the way we can get that random sample. I think the other thing that has changed is the incredible focus on elections. Mm -hmm. um, I think probably originally there was a there was a focus on you know big general elections, you know presidential elections, but there wasn't this you know media attention on Senate races and governors races and congressional races and this primary and that primary. What is what is the the difference in screens? Uh, and explain what a screen is for, sure. for our listeners. But what's the difference in screens uh, between public opinion and media uh, polling services? Why is there such a difference um, in the universe that different polling firms select to sure. try to find the same set of facts? Sure. Um, so first of all, to answer your question of what a screen is, a screen is basically the filter that a pollster uses to take a, a general population audience and turn it into a likely voting audience. So we know, you know, based on years and years of elections that not 100% of the population votes. So pollsters have the challenge of saying, well, you know, what percent of the population is going to vote and how do we figure out which ones will or will not vote? So what you're saying is that um, when you construct your models, when you put together your, your screens, um, it's two parts science, one part art. It definitely is. There's definitely an art to it all, and any any sort of pollster who sort of says they aren't making some level of assumption about something is is kind of lying to you, you know, because mm -hmm. um, you do have to make assumptions uh, to 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 do your polls and build your models. It seems uh, popularly that more conservative media outlets, for instance, sometimes construct a screen or a model that gets them a, a result that is more likely to affirm their biases yeah. because their results are always different, markedly so. I guess you could say the same for maybe the PPP poll on the other side, even though it's not quite a, a parallel. But uh, you know, is, does it seem as if you know, you know, Fox News gets a conservative, uh, more conservative result because it takes a different method, it takes a different screen on purpose? Yeah, you know, that's a that's a complex question. I mean, I think that different pollsters, you know, every pollster is making some amount of assumptions, right? And so you could choose assumptions that align with how, your ideology. How many, how many Democrats are going to vote? How many Republicans are going to vote? Yeah. How many independents? Yeah, or how you're going to construct. So so one of the one of the ways in which you could get a more Republican sample is that, um, generally speaking, Democratic populations are harder to reach populations on the phone. So younger people are harder to reach because they're less likely to participate they have cell phones. Uh, they don't have landline phones. Um, t uh, mi minority populations tend to be similar. Lower income populations tend to be similar. These are all constituencies that vote Democratic. So, you know, if you want to be cynical <laughs> and say that you wanted to sort of bake a poll to be more Republican, you could not try very hard to reach those populations, right? And, and you could sort of justify that by saying, well, we called out randomly and this is what we got. Uh, it's, it's February. Um, the media is in love with all sorts of polls that strike us as irrelevant, like party versus party, you know, mm -hmm. Bernie versus Trump, yep. or whatever polls, which, um, and, and, and a great much of uh, the churn in the media is like, you see, Bernie is competitive against those guys, even though there's been no campaign uh, run against Bernie by Republicans just yet. So we haven't lived that experience yet. What good does it do to measure party versus party this far out the way most of the media is fixated on uh, when an actual national campaign is months away? 
Yeah, not that much good. I, I don't think. Um, I think those those polls. I think history has shown that general election polls this far out are generally not that meaningful, especially when there's competitive primaries going on. Because um, what you don't know is how you know the primary, the way the primary results is certainly going to have an impact on people's perceptions. And you know, somebody who's a, say a, a, a Trump supporter today may not be willing to say that they're going to vote for uh, Ted Cruz in November. But if Ted Cruz was the nominee, you don't really know that that's how they're going to react, right? Let, let me ask you about um, uh, internal polls. Mm-hmm. Um, Donald Trump doesn't seem to have ever heard of internal polls um, because he, he said a couple of weeks ago, he, he said, you know, why do all these campaigns do all this polling? The media does it for free. <laughs> um, not understanding th- that they, a campaign does its own internal polling to identify its supporters. Right. Do, do campaigns typically release their internal polls, or are they only a means of identifying support? Yeah, you know, um, some t- very, very occasionally will they release an internal poll. I would say that, you know, 95% plus of the internal polls we do never see the light of day. Um, you know, and, it, and, you know, in some ways, while the media obsesses about who's winning and who's losing, uh, for our clients, that's not necessarily the most important question. Um, and it's not just about identifying support. It's figuring out the strategy, you know, what you should, what you should talk about, what are the issues that the voters care about, what are the messages and communications that might resonate or not resonate, um, you know, what are people paying attention to, how do they perceive the candidates, what are their strengths, what are their weaknesses. So it's, again, it is sort of that a little bit of anthropology about the electorate to try and understand what people are thinking in order to craft, uh, craft a strategy. So when Donald Trump says the, uh, the media does it for free, well, you know, what he's not getting is all the custom information that, that mm. campaign pollsters ask about to help their clients win. Nick, Nick Gorovich, uh, Global Strategy Group, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Mark. It's great talking to you. Great talking to you, too. If ever there were a good time for a frightening virus to take hold and spread like wildfire, it would not be a year in which the most affected country was hosting an international sporting event. To try and make sense of what's going on with Zika and learn a little bit more about how viruses spread, I dialed up Dr. Dan Pestula, a medical epidemiologist from the University of Colorado in Denver. So Zika virus is a vector-borne disease. Um, What we mean by vectors is a disease that's not transmitted directly from humans to other humans, but from humans to some other animal to than two humans. And specifically, Zika virus is an arbovirus or an arthropod-borne virus. So these are viruses that are transmitted by mosquitoes, sandflies, and ticks. Um, Zika virus is one of many arboviruses that are out there. Other ones, probably the most commonly well-known is West Nile uh, virus. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, other, other arboviruses are uh, stuff like dengue virus, uh, yellow fever virus. Can you actually just talk a little bit about what the actual symptoms of Zika are? Because some of the other uh, viruses that you just listed, I associate with, with pretty terrible symptoms. But from what I understand so far, at least if you're an adult and you contract Zika, the symptoms are not actually all that terrible. Is that right? Correct. When people are infected with Zika virus, 80% of people are asymptomatic, meaning they never know they actually were infected with Zika virus, and they never will know. So only 20% of people who are infected with Zika virus actually have Zika virus disease. And for the most part, 
those who do get Zika virus disease and are symptomatic, it's a relatively mild disease. Usually it's associated with a mild febrile illness, uh, sometimes with rash, sometimes with muscle and joint pains, sometimes with bright red eyes, which we call conjunctivitis. And it usually lasts about a week and then resolves. And that's for the vast majority of people who actually become symptomatic. There have been reports of Zika virus disease being associated with possible microcephalic birth defects, notably in Brazil. There's certainly um, circumstantial evidence that Zika virus disease may be linked to these, but these haven't been conclusively proven yet. When you talk about individuals that have Zika virus disease, 80% being asymptomatic and then 20% having some symptoms, could you be asymptomatic and still potentially, you know, give birth to a microcephalic child, for example? Well, again, I want to stress that the evidence right now is just circumstantial, so we haven't proven these links yet. But um, if it is the case, I don't think we know yet. Um, And kind of scientists at the CDC, at other public health agencies, and the WHO are currently investigating. Got it. I read that Zika originated in Uganda, and I think we first came across it in like the late 40s. Why is it an issue now if we, I mean, if we've known about it for, you know, 70 years, how come now all of a sudden? Yeah, so Zika virus was first identified in the Zika forest of Uganda, I believe, in 1947. And from 1947 until 2007, there had been only a handful of proven uh, Zika virus human infections. Now, there could have been more, but again, as I said, most people are asymptomatic. So mm-hmm. if you, you don't have symptoms, you'll never get tested. Then in 2007, there was an outbreak of Zika virus disease on a little tiny uh, Pacific island called Yap in the um, Federated States of Micronesia, where just over 100 people were suspected of being infected with Zika virus disease, and some of them were laboratory proven. And since 2007, Zika virus has been slowly spreading throughout islands of the Pacific. So in 2013, there was an outbreak of Zika virus disease in French Polynesia. And then in 2014, that had spread to other islands of the Pacific, including Easter Island, roughly halfway between kind of the Polynesian islands and South America. Yeah. And then in 2015, local transmission of Zika virus was detected in Brazil. And since then, um, it has spread throughout Brazil, other South American countries, Mexico, and other countries in the Caribbean. And we think this is spreading because most people on the Western Hemisphere have never seen Zika virus disease, so they're not immune to it. We've seen over the last couple of weeks announcements from the CDC, from the World Health Organization. What do you expect to see from them over the next couple of weeks or months? Yeah, I think they're going to continue their aggressive response to Zika virus disease, as well as to provide updates to the public as soon as they know information. And I think the big thing that the public can do to help prevent Zika virus disease, especially if they go to uh, areas where Zika virus is endemic, are to prevent mosquito bites. And so how you prevent mosquito bites is wearing long sleeve shirts and pants when feasible when outdoors, wearing insect repellent um, with things like beet or picardin or IR3535 or Mm -hmm. oil of lemon eucalyptus to dump any standing water 
around buildings where mosquitoes can breed, and then to use window screens and air conditioning while indoors to keep mosquitoes outside. Okay, this might be the best chance I've had of convincing my landlord to get me an AC unit. (laughs) Good luck with that. Yeah, it's not going to work. By the way, in other international news, you may have seen that North Korea launched a rocket that caused security concerns, with some seeing it as a step towards the development of dangerous missiles. But what's the difference between a rocket and a missile anyway? According to information from the Army's White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico, a missile is a rocket with a brain. Whereas a rocket just goes where you point it, a missile is guided towards a target. Give a missile the capability to travel far enough, say, across an ocean, and you've got an intercontinental ballistic missile, which is where national security concerns come in. Oh, and ballistic, by the way, just means that at some point the missile's path is determined by gravity, not by its engine. But now I'm just showing off. And I promise something more cheery, so let's now hear Peter Martin's interview with Deadpool visual effects supervisor Jonathan Rothbart. We can't allow this Deadpool. I don't have time for your X-Men pool, Colossus. Besides, nobody's getting hurt. That guy was up there before we got here. The top of his, his mask from, the, from um, just under his nose, his upper lip up, is a hard shell, so it doesn't move at all. So um, while he's talking, he, he, he gets what we call chin wag, where you would see Ryan's chin moving. <laughs> and, and Ryan is so expressive, you, you got so much out of it uh, just by him, him uh, acting as a character. But it was definitely lacking the eye motion. So what we ended up doing is we shot what I I kind of started calling a visual ADR, where Ryan would do all of his scenes, and then afterwards we would go back, take off the mask, and have him redo all of his lines. Um, But now we could see his face face and the expressions he would have had while he was on set. And then we we took that to Weta and... um, reproduce all of Ryan's expressions and uh, and then, uh, you know, enhancing that even further at certain times to kind of hit some specific Deadpool looks uh, for all uh, 250 shots of, of Deadpool talking in the movie. Jeez. So anytime he talks, we ended up animating his face. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. That sounds like a lot of work for somebody to go back through and add. Yeah, specific, but we always talk about, you know, it takes you... Uh, it takes you 50% of the time to get a shot uh, 90% done, and it takes you uh, 50% of the time to get the last 10% done. Yeah. Because that's the way the work is. So it's really about, uh, you know, an example might be for our Colossus character is, was, um, who's all metal, and um, we had gone and, 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 and looked uh, through a bunch of different types of metal to uh, kind of come up with the look we wanted uh, for his character, and then we spent months just developing that look and, and, and getting it to look right just in a what we call a turntable, and so it, not even in a specific shot. But then he's a crazy character because he's all metal, and so he's totally reflective, so he looks completely di- different depending on the environment that's around him. Yeah. Um, so there was a lot, of, a lot of time spent just putting little bits of, you know, just little teeny highlights and chips here and... and you know, slight. We we did some uh, things where we we were always talking about, about patina and and uh, and burnishing the metal and um, all sorts of little details just to kind of make him feel 
rougher and, and, and not clean and, and a weathered person that that shows through in the metal. Yeah. Um, and and those, those are the fun details you get to work on. Different little details where you just, you know, my, my wife jokes at me because I'll just stare at nothing for the longest <laughs> time and she'll wonder what the hell I'm, I'm, I'm looking at. And, you know, it's usually work-related. Hey, yeah, I want to shoot, baby. Okay, so for today's edition of Stupid or Amazing, we're going to talk about a new subscription-based flight service called OneGo. OneGo, you pay a subscription based on what region you want to fly to. You can do this nationwide in the U.S. or in the West, Central, or the Eastern United States. It starts at $1,500 for the Western region, and it's up to $3,000 nationally, and you fly as much as you want in that month. Um, We're going to debate this because it sounds like it could be amazing or it could be stupid. I've got Peter Martin here. He's one of our editors. And also... Our guest expert is Brian Kelly, the founder of and also the Points Guy. Um, you kind of break down the airline industry, and you give tips about everything from frequent flyer programs to credit cards offer bonus miles. I think maybe you can help us untangle this. Yeah, I have a weird uh, uh, skill in looking through the fine print and details, so that's what we, we bring to our readers. Do you guys read the Apple notices? Is that <laughs> <No>. <laughs> You know, my favorite day of the year is when the IRS releases all their new... No, just kidding. <laughs> no, but, you know, a lot of times with these airline programs, they are wonky, and you can maximize, and, and that's what I love doing, uh, especially when new services like this come out, and they sound so amazing. Yeah, so should we start with the uninformed opinions or the informed opinions? <laughs> that's I, the I question. the uninformed opinion. Well, me too, but yeah. I, I did look at you when I said that, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I came from this from a primarily cheap perspective, thinking that it's not super cheap. It's $2,900 for a month of nationwide service. But if you wanted to fly everywhere, like if you just were a college kid and took a summer, I thought that would be amazing just to take one month, fly, see everybody I know, just hop to the next city to the next and cross all those off my list. Um, And then the more I learned about it, the less of a great idea I thought that was. Mostly because I learned there is a $500 application fee that you start up. So if you're only doing it for one month, suddenly you're paying $3,500 and then that's a lot of $300 tickets to pack in to 30 days to actually make some money back and make it worthwhile. My question was like, it seems like there's kind of a lot of gotchas for this service. So that's why, Brian, I wanted to know. So I, I think I'm still leaning towards stupid, but maybe you can teach me. Well, I think they're brilliant at marketing because some of the first press releases I saw fly as much as you want. Unlimited flying. First and foremost, it's not. There are so <laughs> many restrictions. Uh, the you know the biggest being that you have to book seven days in advance. And get this, so you pay that five hundred bucks, you get your first month of service. Well, guess what? That entire first week oh. is lost. So you're paying the five hundred bucks, <laughs> and you're really only getting three weeks in your first month. How I I, I find bad. that to be appalling that they wouldn't even start the month from when you can start flying. Yeah. So immediately it's. If you're not doing this for at least a few months, it's definitely not worth it at all. Exactly. Because I was thinking, okay, like suppose you're you're flying from one side of the country to the other. I'm from California and I live in New York. Those those get pretty expensive, especially on short notice. Although you can't book on short notice. You know what though? But these days you'd be surprised. I mean, airlines uh, seven days in economy notice. Airfares are pretty cheap. You know, with with oil prices at record lows, you can fly cross country. Um, you know. 150 or less um, one way. If you follow fare deals and on the on the internet, there's so many sites today. It's 108 bucks round trip New York to Miami over the next couple months. I think consumers have this concept that flying so expensive. It's actually not. It uh, flying these days is really really cheap. Now where they get you is all the fees, right? So the fees for the seat and you know even JetBlue, who was known for giving free bags recently, now starts charging. And mm-hmm. the thing with one goes, you still have to pay all those fees. So. 
you're basically shelling out a ton of cash in the hopes that your schedule is so consistently packed week in and week out that you're going to come out ahead. And I can tell you, you know, the, the people who invested in this have done the math and are probably smarter at math than you. <laughs> it's like, you know, going to a casino, you know, some people may be able to really come out millionaires of a casino, but by, by far, uh, most people do not. And that's kind of the same here. Like, so you would vote, so you're voting, you vote stupid. If there are commuters out there that maybe want to see their family twice a week, they could do the math where this could make sense. But I mean, how many people are, you know, commuting to a far off city twice a week. Yeah. There are certainly people out there, but when you're looking at the large population and the fact that this service was picked up in huge news outlets and hailed as this new unlimited sort of travel, um, it's, uh, like I said, genius marketing. On first blush, I thought amazing, but now that I've learned, certainly learning the stuff from Brian, I think stupid. I couldn't, certainly for someone like me, stupid. If you're one of the few people who work for, maybe amazing, but for most of us. Yeah, I have to say stupid. I don't know, the little bit of research I did crushed my spirits before I came in, and then you fully squashed them. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel slightly optimistic, which is that there are still good. You said it was. You said ultimately air travel was cheap, Commuters. but you don't realize it. Yeah. So. so it seems like the smarter thing is just to go to the points guy. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and just be, educate yourself a little bit. You know, people are so stressed about booking travel. It's really not that hard. And, you know, on social media, there's so many sites to follow, deal alerts and, and technology to use to, to sniff out low fares. And then, yeah, and then maximize your frequent flyer miles, your credit cards, and... Uh, travel really well um, with relatively little cash outlay. So that's our show. How Your World Works is produced by Jack Dillon. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Andy Bowers from Panoply, as well as Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. If you can, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to our show on iTunes. And while you're there, give us a rating and leave a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And here's the thing. When you give a rating, you don't have to leave a comment. Right now, I looked this morning, and we have 17 ratings, but only one comment. And that one comment is just about how to pronounce the word nuclear. So we'd love to have more feedback so we can make the show better. In the meantime, don't forget to check out our other show, The Most Useful Podcast Ever. And if you want to read more about Deadpool, check out our website, popularmechanics.com podcasts. While you're there, don't forget that you can subscribe to the print and digital editions of our magazine for just $13.99 for a year. I'm Kevin Dupsick. Thanks for listening. Nuclear. 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 Nuclear.